everybody, Raji Sohal here. On the podcast today, Queen Elizabeth's death continues to attract tributes from around the world. I speak with a British history professor about the legacy she leaves behind. And we have a lawyer on to talk about a case of a business suing a customer because of bad reviews they say contained false accusations. And the Conservative Party has a new leader, Pierre Poilievre. David Moscrop joins us to tell us what it means for the party. Pierre Poilievre was elected as the new leader of the Conservative Party yesterday. It was a very decisive win with 68.15% of the available points on that first ballot. Former Quebec Premier Jean Charest trailed far behind. So what will all of this mean for the Conservative Party? To talk more about this with us is David Moscrop, political scientist, a podcaster and a columnist with Washington Post. Hi, David. Good morning. I had to check the time there. Yeah. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Still very early on a Sunday morning here. I think uh, a lot of people were expecting Poilievre to be elected the new leader of the Conservative Party, but it was a, a landslide, wasn't it? Uh, yes, it was effectively a coronation. Um, the second coron- or the first of two coronations we're going to see in the next little while. It was Truly, truly uh, an absolute drubbing. I mean, Jean Charest, as mentioned, second place, 16%. Uh, Polyev won something like 300 ridings, uh, won the popular vote without without a doubt. Uh, and this comes from the membership. So this is the party membership, many of whom signed up to be Pierre Polyev members, uh, saying this is the person they want leading the party. Yeah, there was a time where Jean Charest would have brought in more votes. What changed? 30 years? Uh, <laughs> uh, no, but no joke, 30 years. I mean, you know, he, at least federally, I mean, he's been in federal politics for quite a long time. He was obviously in Quebec politics for a long time. Um, but the Conservative Party changed. I mean, it, it collapsed, not exactly under his watch. It was Brian Mulroney's watch. Um, but he was in, in the remnants of the Conservative Party. It was a progressive Conservative Party. It was fairly centered, sort of business conservatives. Uh, not indistinguishable from the liberals, but broadly similar to the liberals. And the party uh, changed. Uh, you know, Stephen Harper came along. There was a fissure. They came back together. And there was a battle over what kind of party it was going to be. An old red Tory kind of centrist conservative party or a kind of liber- quasi-libertarian proper conservative right-wing party. And they chose the latter. And they chose the game with Andrew Scheer. They kind of tried to hedge a little bit with Aaron O'Toole. And now they've come full around back to Pierre Polyev. And uh, that's the kind of politics we're going to get in the middle of, of also a very different time, a time of crisis, inflation, pandemic, climate change. And here we are. Yeah. Polyev's speech contained a, a lot of slogans, as expected, mm-hmm. I think. What was he aiming for with his messaging, do you think? Well, I think it was the same thing he was aiming for uh, throughout the entire campaign, which seems to have gone on forever which is, um, you know, the government has failed you. Life has become impossible because of them. You can't afford your food. You can't afford your rent. You can't afford to, you know, go to school. You make less money uh, when you make more because of taxes. And the government's in the way. And so I'm going to come in. I'm going to undo the gatekeepers. I'm going to fire the gatekeepers. I'm going to unleash a wave of freedom. And then everyone's going to get everything they want. Uh, he toned it down a little bit on the sort of conspiracy thinking, um, convoy boosting, anti-world economic forum, fire the bank of uh, Canada governor, crackpot stuff. It's still there, but it's sort of subtle now. 
but it was really a message of, of getting the government out of the way so you can live an affordable life. And it's a pretty powerful one. And why do you think he dampened some of the more extreme language yesterday? Well, I mean, I, I dampens uh, the right way to put it, uh, because I, I do think it's still there. I don't think we need to, to you know, dismiss the fact that it's been there a long time and it's still implicitly there. But the fact is, and this happens every time, the leadership race is very different from the general election, right? A very small percentage of the general electorate voted in this race, a tiny, tiny percent, single digits percentage. Now he's got to move to winning 36 to 39, 40% of the general electorate, at least those who turn out, so that he can form government. That's going to require, I think, a slightly different message, softer message, tweaked message. But I don't think he's going to abandon his politics or his positions. I think there'll be a bit of a stylistic dampening and shift, but the, the politics are the same. Yeah, it's been a long time now since the, the Stephen Harper-led conservatives that we've kind of gone full circle with now after Scheer and then Aaron O'Toole now. There's a lot of talk about Polyev's potential to become prime minister one day. What's your outlook on that? Uh, I mean, I think it's, it's, who knows, first of all, a lot of things can change. We don't know when the election is going to be. A lot of things can change. Making strong predictions in politics is just begging to have egg on your face down the line. Although people usually forget, which is one pundits <laughs> love that, right? They can say whatever they want. If they're I'll right, remember. they come back and say, I told you so. And if they're wrong, they're like, no, I never met him. Never been on radio. What are you talking about? <laughs> uh, but the fact is, I mean, he's, he's competitive right now. Uh, you know, keep in mind that the last two elections, the conservatives won more votes than the liberals. They just had fewer seats, so they didn't form government. But they won more votes. Uh, and Polyev is, can absolutely pick up a couple more. And this is fun fact, um, or not so fun on this Sunday morning. Uh, Justin Trudeau's staying, he says. This will be his fourth election. It's happened twice in Canadian history that a prime minister has won four elections in a row. And it happened back to back. John A. Macdonald did it. Wilfred Laurier did it. Ooh. Hasn't happened in 100 years plus. Wow. So it's tough. So it's, it's, but, but the liberals must think that Trudeau's their best shot. Um, and Polyev thinks he can unseat him, and he very well might be able to do that. What, did you, what do you think Polyev's popularity that showed up yesterday, what did it rely on? And what's, what's it going to take for him to increase that base? I think it's anger. Anger. Anger and frustration. And uh, mobilizing people who feel like they're not getting a fair shake. And you know what, quite frankly, people who probably aren't getting a fair shake, he's probably not wrong about that. In fact, he's definitely not wrong about that. He's right about that. And he mobilized those folks, and especially those who want a different government. And he's going to now take that message to the to the country. And that's going to be a lot of people who want a new government, uh, you know, disaffected liberals, uh, switch voters, uh, traditional conservatives are all going to be out for a new government, uh, especially if things continue to be difficult when the next election comes around. You know, still in the pandemic, still dealing with inflation, affordability, still dealing with a housing crisis, you know, healthcare crisis. People who say, well, what we're doing right now isn't working. We need someone new. And Polyev was so good at tapping into that, that feeling, that frustration. Uh, I suspect he's going to take that now across the country as he has and try to mobilize those folks. And if things are still rough when the next election pops up, we think it's going to be 2025, but maybe earlier. Um, he's got a pretty good shot at making that message resonate. Yeah. You talked there about anger, <laughs> anger and frustration. I think uh, a lot of people think that that's exactly what Trump rose on as well. But if you think about Trump's rise, uh, the pandemic safety measures, the trucker rally, 
are those the things that paved the way for a leader like Poiliev, or is there something else that we're missing? Uh, well, I mean, I think the, the first thing to note is that, you know, Polyev isn't, isn't Trump. I know that a lot of people who don't particularly care for him or his politics want to, want to say that he is. Uh, I'm a, you know, not a fan of his politics, but I don't think he's, he's Trump. He is, in fact, a party elite. He has been a politician for a long time in this party. He's not an outsider. He's an insider. Um, the one broad similarity is that he's willing to push norms and break them down and associate with some folks that... Uh, politicians probably shouldn't be associating with. Now, that's a similarity and an important one, and I think a dangerous one. Uh, so there is that. Uh, I, I think the paving of the way, though, of, has primarily been the pandemic and the affordability crisis, uh, housing crisis and healthcare crisis. And I think um, you know, in those moments, people start to look at the governments of the day and say, oh, I, I'm not convinced this is for me. And they start to look around and say, okay, well, who can replace them? And that's when they want someone who's railing against the establishment, right? Um, and, and I think that's primarily what allowed Polyev to, to rise. I will say this, though. That kind of rise of anger, frustration, and backlash, which has been stoked by people like Trump, also paves the way. So it's not just about the crisis. It's also about the raging anger of, uh, of, of backlash that comes when things start to go sideways. David, that's about all the time we have this morning, but I want to thank you for your time. Entirely my pleasure. Thanks for having me. A Surrey Animal Hospital is suing a former client over a series of TikTok videos criticizing the treatment her dog received at the clinic. The hospital is claiming the videos are damaging the business's reputation. And the lawsuit is that's filed in the BC Supreme Court, the clinic said that the dog's post-surgery infection was the owner's responsibility. And it accused the owner of posting the videos knowing that her story wasn't true in an attempt to drag the reputation of the animal hospital through the mud. The dog owner, Vera, posted a first video of her and a coworker shouting at each other. And this was on TikTok. That video racked up over 800,000 views. And then it was followed by more posted videos about what Vera says were the uh, animal hospital's failings. Very complicated. To talk more about this, we have Daniel Reed, an associate counsel with Harper Gray. Good morning, Daniel. Good morning. This is a fascinating case. Is the lawsuit about defamation, slander? What is it about? So, yeah, defamation is what the lawsuit's about, and slander is a form of defamation. So uh, slander is spoken word. So if you say it uh, to a neighbor over a fence, that's generally considered slander. Libel is a different type of defamation, and that's where it's written or permanent, such as in this case, in the form of a video that's posted online. So this is a, a defamation case involving libel. Okay, I think a lot of people hearing this who themselves have posted online before complaining about uh, some service they've received um, are thinking, oh, well, I could get in trouble for that. Could they? Potentially. Um, and that's why it's such a fun and tricky area of the law. Um, there is a defense to defamation called fair comment. That's what lets you go to a restaurant, eat a meal and say, you know what, that meal wasn't very good. If you express a legitimate opinion based on true facts, there's a defense to defamation. Where people get into trouble is sometimes it'll exaggerate facts or they'll get the facts wrong. So if I were to say I went to a, a restaurant and, and the dinner wasn't very good, 
but I didn't actually go or I made up what I ordered or I made up something that wasn't true, I'm not allowed to just say, well, it's just my opinion if I'm saying factual things that aren't true. So it's a tricky area of law. Um, that's why lawyers uh, all get involved and, and, and none of this is legal advice uh, generally, but uh, generally speaking, you can get in trouble for reviews. Uh, the defense of fair comment wouldn't apply if you get the facts wrong. Okay, so if this uh, dog owner uh, had only stated facts that were true um, and that she had, I guess, evidence of that being true, then it would be considered fair comment. Where it steps over the line is when the elements are not true, correct? Yeah, potentially. That's that's potentially the case uh, uh, in, in a lot of reviews. If someone says things that are factually untrue, um, they can't turn around and say, well, it's just my opinion. If they get the facts wrong, the defense of fair comment won't apply. But these days, with everybody being uh, their own editor and posting on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, on TikTok, um, people think that there's freedom of expression to say whatever they want as they see fit. That's exactly it. I mean, we live so close to the United States, and the United States has really, really, really strong protection for freedom of expression. In Canada, we have protection for freedom of expression, too, but we also have stronger protections for reputation. So it's a balancing act. You have freedom of expression, but if you defame someone, there may be consequences for what you say in the form of a judgment against you. So what might the courts be looking at in this case? Well, all sorts of things. They're going to look at what are the exact words that were said. Um, so uh, was it just here's the interaction that happened uh, or, or did it say things that were factually untrue? They're going to look at uh, opinion. Is it actually an opinion or is it a statement of fact? It's not an opinion to say, in my opinion, uh, the chef at the restaurant last night came out and punched me in the face. That's a statement of fact. That's not an opinion at all. Uh, they're going to look at the motivation. So some of the defenses will turn on whether or not someone knew what they were saying was false at the time or if they deliberately said it to damage reputation. So there's a whole host of factors that a court's going to look at before making a determination. One, was it defamatory? And two, even if it was defamatory, do any of the defenses of, to defamation apply? So it's a very case-specific. Every time the court looks at defamation, it looks at the very case-specific facts of each case. And, and Daniel, the technology here, the social media app, TikTok, would seem to be an important factor. Do you think the courts would take into consideration the, the age of the dog owner and the demographic of uh, the users of TikTok? You know, I think the courts are going to take into uh, account the reach of the defamatory posts, if they are indeed defamatory. It used to be, if you were complaining about a business, you complained to your spouse, your neighbors, your coworkers. It's a pretty small group of people. Now, uh, with things like TikTok, Instagram, social media, the audience and potential damage of these statements is so much broader. It's alleged in this claim that over 800,000 people viewed uh, some of the posts that were posted online. So, that is something we've seen here in Canada, the courts take into account how big a reach people have on the Internet, because that dramatically increases the amount of damage a defamatory statement can have. And what about recording interactions? When are people in Canada legally allowed to do so and when are they not? Well, as with everything, that is a really tricky question. So each thing is, is, is case specific. Um, generally speaking, uh, recordings can be made uh, as long as one party and two parties is aware of it. 
um, and in public spaces. Where it gets tricky is when you introduce the concept of privacy. So our Supreme Court of Canada has said in, in a criminal case recently, um, you can have an expectation of privacy even if you're in public. If you're sunbathing on the beach, you might be okay with the people around you seeing you, but you might not be okay with someone videotaping you, tagging you, and, and, and posting it online for everyone to look at. So privacy is a really tricky concept as well, and it really is case-specific. Generally speaking, though, um, it is okay to video in public places. That's a general statement. Again, not legal advice, but sort of generally sure. how the courts have approached things. Yeah, and yet recordings can potentially at times protect a consumer or protect a patient in a private setting, but that's the scenario in which they're not permitted. Is that right? Um, it depends. Um, so as long as, as one person uh, knows that they're recording, so, so holds up the video and says, I'm recording you in this business, Generally speaking, that will be on side, although the business would have a right to say, I'd like you to leave now. I don't want you recording. Please leave. Where it can get tricky is the second example you used about a patient. Say it's in a doctor's office and there's other patients who are visible. Um, that might run into real privacy concerns because you're, you're not just videotaping the, the staff member you're interacting with, but you're videotaping other people you know, at that, that clinic or, or somewhere else who may not want to be videotaped and disclosing private information about them. So, just like with defamation, privacy is a tricky concept. Generally speaking, uh, videotaping an interaction with a business, as long as they can see that you're doing it, as long as you're doing it above board and you know you're doing it, um, that's something that generally speaking uh, is, is okay at the above board. And in the case that we're talking about today with the Surrey Animal Hospital suing the former client, if the animal hospital wins, will that set a kind of precedent you know, there's been a couple cases in BC recently. There was a uh, uh, there's been a couple cases where someone sued a wedding photographer. Um, uh, there's been a number of cases where businesses have sued people who have left defamatory reviews on sites like Yelp or, or Google reviews, and they've, they've been successful in doing so. Um, every time one of these cases comes out, I, I think it does send a message that uh, you know you have to be careful in what you post and say online. Um, that said, there are cases where it's done the exact opposite, where, where starting a lawsuit uh, just draws more attention to a business and you get other people coming out of the woodwork and saying, hey, something similar happened to me too. So it, it's a really uh, can be a tricky thing for a business, but whether or not they want to actually go ahead and start a lawsuit, sometimes it, it works out well and works out in their favor. Other times it, it just causes more damage than uh, the, the online reviews did in the first place. What do you think the lesson is here for someone that would be posting the review? Always be careful about what you post. Um, it's really easy in this day and age, if you have a bad experience, to pull out your phone, fire off a TikTok, a post on Facebook or Instagram, there could be consequences for what you say. And, and I always like to say is if, if this isn't something you would like your parents or a judge or your, your, your teacher in elementary school to say you saying online, maybe think twice before you post it because it can get you into legal trouble in some circumstances. It's very fascinating stuff. Thank you, Daniel, for being with us today. A pleasure being here. Thank you.
Tributes following the death of Queen Elizabeth II have continued to pour in over the weekend. Yesterday, Prince William and Harry, along with their wives, greeted mourners. And the oak coffin, uh, carry, which has in it Queen Elizabeth, has left Balmoral Castle. It's in Edinburgh. It's accompanied, the procession is accompanied by the Queen's daughter, Princess Anne, and her husband. Our guest today is Sean Lang from Anglia Ruskin University, and he's written an article in The Conversation praising the Queen. Hello, Sean. Hello. Hi. So you celebrate the Queen in this article that you've written for The Conversation, uh, calling her a modernizer. What, what do you mean by that? The monarchy has changed enormously in the time that she's been on, or in the time that she was on the throne. And uh, if you sort of think back to when she came to the, throne, the monarchy, although the, the King George VI was much loved um, by by the you know the British people and by you know people of the then empire, um, nevertheless the monarchy itself as an as an institution was very old fashioned, very stuffy. And there's been a huge change in terms of openness and if you like sort of democratizing the monarchy. Um, a lot of that actually was down to Prince Philip when he first uh, appeared on the scene. He was a great believer in sort of sweeping away all the old ways. Um, and so a lot of the very old, very rather uh, sort of snobbish traditions that were uh, associated with the British court went in the 50s, much more openness to television, of course, the coronation being the biggest one right at the start, but also very importantly, the way in which the Queen wanted to build a sort of relationship with the ordinary people um, for the United Kingdom, and very importantly, of course, with the peoples of the Commonwealth. So all those walkabouts, all those sort of meetings and direct meetings that she had, as well as the establishing a relationship with, uh, with the various political leaders around the Commonwealth meant that there was a sort of direct experience of the Queen, which I don't think there was really an equivalent of in her predecessors. And in that sense, the monarchy has adapted to the needs, first of the 20th century, and continued to adapt for the 21st century. And that, of course, is how things continue. So in that sense, yes, she's the, I think she did a, a remarkably good job, and not one necessarily you would have anticipated when she first came to the throne as a very um, inexperienced 25-year-old. Yeah, you mentioned the walkabouts, very important there, but also she was a modernizer with telecommunications, wasn't she? Yes, she was. Um, various ways in which you can see that. I mean, obviously, you go right the way through to today with, you know, the Royal Family website and all and the uh, sort of Twitter feeds and what have you, all the sort of things that you expect uh, for today. Um, but it's not just that um, they're sort of in tune with that, but that to some extent, the uh, under her, the royal family got ahead of the game, sometimes indeed a little bit too far ahead. Um, so I mentioned the televising the coronation, and there was a lot of uh, nervousness and uncertainty about whether that was a good idea. And uh, and, and she agreed. And, uh, and again, sort of Prince Philip was a great one for promoting it. But I said that sometimes they might go a little bit too too far ahead because the film The Royal Family, which the BBC made in 1969, I think it was, um, which showed uh, a lot of the sort of home life of, of, the, of the royal family, and particularly up at Balmoral, um, that had a huge impact at the time. And then since then, uh, there's a sort of feeling, I think, that uh, uh, maybe it had gone a bit too far. And so it's, it's actually quite difficult to get, uh, get hold of it nowadays. This has sort of been withdrawn from many of the streaming platforms. But nevertheless, um, sort of in keeping in touch with the latest uh, trends and uh, and preferences and styles and fashions and, and so on, obviously helped enormously by the various members of, of the royal family. Um, 
And uh, this is why things like, you know, the Olympic stunt and the Paddington Bear stunt in the, in the Platinum Jubilee are a little bit more significant than it might at first appear because they do show a monarch and indeed a monarchy, which is at home with, um, you know, the, the, the interest, the passions, the, uh, even the sort of sense of humour of, of not just people within Britain, but I think, you know, they, they were both sort of big global hits. And that is, shows a sort of sureness of touch. And if you like an ability, because after all, if you can relax enough to, have a bit of a, a leg pull of yourself then it shows that you are quite confident not just in the technology not just in the media but also in the relationship you've got with the people who'll be watching so I think there's been quite a if you like a maturing of the monarchy uh, as well as a modernizing process. And she was a steadfast diplomatic figure in the way that she did not weigh in on political issues and matters the way that, say, uh, people are wondering if King Charles will. Um, but some would say that the Queen didn't modernize in step enough with the times. Like she was in South Africa during apartheid and made no comment on discrimination or didn't make her, her ideas known about that. And then there have been calls even now uh, for the royals to denounce the wealth that they gain from the global south. How do we reconcile the figure of, you know, the steadfast service with the latter? I think it's a question of expectations and managing expectations, because a lot of the work, a lot of the sort of political work that the Queen uh, has done has has been behind the scenes and that because that's the nature of it. And so, you know, when we say that, um, you know, she doesn't intervene on political matters, she doesn't intervene politically um, or sorry, I should say publicly on political matters uh, and only on a couple of occasions. And then very, very guardedly did she say something in public, which was taken as a statement. I mean, there's one, for example, about the Scottish referendum in 2014. But these were very, very uh, uh, guarded. That one was quite say. thinly veiled. <laughs> yeah, very, yeah, thinly veiled. But nevertheless, it wasn't. It wasn't actually a sort of big speech or anything of the sort. Mm-hmm. Most of what she does is behind the scenes, and constitutionally, she has this right to be consulted and to uh, and to advise and to warn and so on. And it means that the UK Prime Minister has has to doesn't choose to or anything like that has to constitutionally um, meet her on a, on a weekly basis and to listen to her advice and so on. Now, what that means is that it's happening behind the scenes. We do not know what is said. There are no minutes taken and there's sort of strict rules of confidentiality about it. We can speculate. The Crown, the TV series, speculates about it. There was even a, a stage play or, you know, based on these audiences, but we don't know. And that can be very frustrating, I think, for people um, who are looking for something more overt from the monarch. As you say, a statement, uh, whether it's a statement or an apology, or at the time of Diana's death, you know, just wanting to see uh, see the Queen or see the the, the flag on Buckingham Palace um, down at half mast. There are, there are expectations. Sometimes um, I think it has to be said, you know, that the Queen and the those advising her have got it wrong. But for the most part, um, I. Th- I, I, they'll never they'll never satisfy everyone and they'll never satisfy everyone who, who wants uh, to see the Queen basically take whatever line that they think is right. But in terms of apartheid, for example, um, a lot of the arguments about that were going on in the Commonwealth and among Commonwealth leaders. And it was the sort of thing which could easily have pulled the Commonwealth apart, particularly when you had um, uh, British prime ministers not supporting sanctions against um, South Africa and in the 70s against uh, Rhodesia um, and, and this was very much the case in the 80s with Mrs Thatcher. The fact that the Commonwealth didn't fall apart, a lot of that was down to the sort of influence and the uh, mediating and above all the sort of pacifying influence that, that the Queen had. So that's the sort of thing, it's not, it doesn't catch the eye, it won't give you the headline 
um, statement um, that perhaps many people would look for and hope for. But it's very, it can be very effective. And that's the nature of the role. It's a strange role. It's a very difficult role. It's not one that many politicians, I think, would feel um, easy, uh, you know, would, would find it easy to do. It must be an incredibly frustrating role. And you're right to say that as Prince, Prince Charles sort of benefited from the fact he's not bound by it and was able to speak his mind on a number of issues. But he understands perfectly well, as he said, that as king, he's in a different ball game, different role, and he will have to keep those opinions behind the scenes um, and or else simply leave them to others. So it's I, I, managing expectations is not easy. People will always feel that more could have been done or more could have been done publicly. Um, and, and I guess that's that, that's just the nature of the territory. But within the bounds of what the Constitution allows, I think uh, she used her influence um, very effectively and to very good, um, uh, good, you know, good outcomes. OK, Sean, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for being with us today. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.